before he became a box office hit and a star of the big screen, now some of you people don't even, won't even know who I'm talking about here today, but actor Burt Lancaster, which the majority of you have probably never heard of, but in his younger days, he was a circus performer. And as a matter of fact, after the less than perfect audition he gave when applying for the job, it's a wonder that he even landed that at all. Author Robert Wise describes the scene at that audition. Let me, let me describe it to you in his words. He was asked to perform on the parallel bars. And so he leapt on the bars and began his routine. And because he was nervous, his timing was a little off. And he spun over the bar, falling flat on his face some 10 feet below. He was so humiliated that he immediately leapt out back on the bar and he spun again at the same point, flipped off and smashed to the ground again. <laughs> Bert's tights were torn, he was cut and bleeding and he was fiercely upset. He leapt back again, but the third time was even worse for this time he fell on his back and the agent came over, picked him up, helped him up and said, son, if you won't do that again, you've got the job. That picture remind you of anything? Like maybe living your Christian life? We set out to make this great showing, but self-confidence combined with a little nervousness, maybe some poor timing, personal inadequacy, a little bit of overzealousness, sends us flying out of control, spinning and crashing to the ground in utter humiliation. In other words, we become humble. What do we do then? Well, we get up, we brush off the embarrassment, and we dive back in again with even greater human determination, only to fall even harder the next time. Finally, as we lay face down in our failed human attempt at doing it all in our own strength, I think God, our Heavenly Father, in His still small voice, often whispers to us, saying, Son, Daughter, if you won't do that again, you got the job. Every single day, every single day, you and I are tempted to leap on the bars of life and perform in our own strength. Every day we're tempted to do that. But friends, that's not really the way God intended for us to live as Christians. He never expects us to go it alone. If he did, he would never have sent Jesus to die for us in the first place, be raised from the dead, or ascend to heaven where he continually intercedes for us in prayer. He never, ever would have sent his Holy Spirit to permanently live inside of us, to be our helper, to be our guide, and to fill us with his power in order to accomplish the purpose and the plan that he has prepared for us from the foundation of the world. Be filled with the Spirit. That's what the Apostle Paul says in Ephesians 5.18. Be filled with the Spirit continually, completely, consistently, minute by minute, day by day. Submit yourselves to His control. That's what he's saying in that text. That's the essence of what it means 
to being filled with the Spirit. That's what it's all about. That's what I left you with the last time we were together, and I want to finalize that text today. Very simply put, to be Spirit-filled is to be Spirit-controlled. It's to be Father-controlled. It's to live a life that is Jesus-controlled. It is to be God-controlled. That's what he means. And it begins with a heart that pulsates with John the Baptist's attitude. He must increase and I must decrease. That's the answer to the prayer. Lord, make us humble. The Spirit-filled life means being Christ-conscious and Christ-focused, which eventually leads to Christ-likeness. And that's what the Holy Spirit's ministry is all about, making people conscious of Jesus and His ways so that they become like Him. Remember in John 16, verse 14, Jesus said, He, meaning the Holy Spirit, will glorify me. For He will take of mine and will disclose it to you. Being filled with the Spirit then is fundamental to our walk of faith with Jesus Christ. And so the first and most important aspect of what being filled with the Spirit is about, as I said last time, we'll review it a little bit, is we need to embrace the counsel. Embrace Paul's counsel. Turn your Bibles to Ephesians 5, verse 18. Ephesians 5, verse 18. Paul says, do not get drunk with wine, for that is dissipation. But be filled with the Spirit. And as I said before, to be filled with the Spirit literally means to be moved along in our walk with God as a wind fills the sail of a sailboat. It means yielding to our life to His control. It means also that in everything we do, we kind of leave behind this wake, this flavor of Jesus Christ wherever we go. In other words, the Spirit-filled life is observable. It's always observable. Because why do you think that is? Because it changes us. It changes us into the image of Christ. We begin to look a whole lot more like Jesus and a whole lot less like the old self. Like the old me. The old you. And it happens one spiritual step at a time. That was the reaction of those who observed the early disciples as they ministered under the Spirit's fullness. If you remember correctly, in Acts chapter 4, Peter stands up and it says in the text in verse 8 that he was filled with the Holy Spirit and he began to speak to them. Rulers and elders of the people, he said with boldness. And then he went on to talk to them about salvation that is found in Christ alone. And then it says in verse 13, now as they observed the confidence of Peter and John and understood that they were uneducated and untrained men, they were amazed and began to recognize them as having been with Jesus. This is what the filling of the Holy Spirit does to people. When you leave, it leaves a flavor behind of Jesus Christ and people scratch their heads and say, that guy's been with Jesus. That woman's been with Jesus. See, that'll be the general reaction of those who observe your life as it overflows with the Spirit and the fullness and the power of the Spirit. But the question seems to be looming in everybody's mind, how are we filled with the Holy Spirit? Isn't that what you want to know? 
Really, be, be honest with me. Do you want to know that? How to be filled with the Holy Spirit? Well, before we get to that, there's another incredibly important aspect of being filled with the Spirit that we must address before we delve into the how, and that is the why. Why be filled with the Holy Spirit? And so the second thing that I want to point out here is we need to evaluate our motives. Evaluate your motive. In Acts chapter 1, you see, the Spirit-filled life is a power-filled life. It's a powerful life. Remember what Jesus told the disciples would happen when the Spirit came upon them in Acts chapter 1, verse 8. Jesus said to them, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. And you'll be my witnesses. Where? In Jerusalem and in Judea and in Samaria and even to the remotest parts of the earth. And indeed, they did receive power. In Acts chapter 2, we witnessed the tremendous abilities that they received to speak the gospel with boldness in languages previously unknown to them. Throughout the book of Acts, we are stunned at the power they had to preach so passionately and persuasively that thousands of souls were added to the church in a single event. And that happened on more than one occasion. They had the power to heal the sick. They had the power to deliver people from spiritual bondage. They had the power to raise people from the dead. And they had the power to stand before the most prominent and influential officials in the land and speak with boldness and conviction and without fear. They had power to discern evil and confront it aggressively. They had power to thwart Satan himself. And they had power to unflinchingly endure horrible persecution, torture, and even suffer martyrdom. See, they were transformed by power. The power of the Holy Spirit. But now here's the danger. Power sometimes perverts. Power corrupts. Power is what a lot of people want. The secular world wants it and the church wants it. And sometimes for all the wrong reasons. People clamor for power. They desire to see the miraculous, the abnormal, the supernatural, the fantastic on a regular basis. This is what people think the spirit-filled life is. Power, power, power all the time. Power. Power to heal, power to cast out demons, power to raise the dead. But I want to tell you something in the scripture that neither then nor can we now presume or expect to experience miraculous, fantastic, tremendous events on a day-to-day -day basis. Now, why do I say that? You might say, well, that sounds kind of heretical. I want you to go home and search the scriptures. Search the scriptures. See for yourself. Contrary to what some people are preaching, neither the Old Testament nor the New Testament presents that kind of power as being the regular routine of God's people. 
Neither Testament presents that that way. Am I saying that God's power is unavailable? And that it doesn't operate in miraculous ways? Absolutely not. That's not what I'm saying. What I am saying is that it is the exception rather than the rule. Now follow me. I love how Chuck Swindoll makes this point in his book, Flying Closer to the Flame. He says, several years ago, a pilot told me that flying an airplane consists of hours and hours of sheer boredom interrupted periodically with split seconds of sheer panic. He goes on to say, I would never use the word boredom to describe the Christian life, but you get the point. He says, God can and often does, sometimes does, step into our world in supernatural ways and manifests his extreme power. It is remarkable how on occasion he interrupts the routine of life with something phenomenal that only he can do. And we acknowledge that and we praise him for it. But, he continues, I repeat, we should not expect that day after day. In some ways, the normal Christian life is not unlike the normal married life. Follow me. Swindell says the normal married life is not soft music, saran wrap negligees, the night after night in a hot, bubbly hot tub. The normal married life is not soft-footed waiters serving you tea in the afternoon at the Ritz-Carlton Hotel while you watch the surf break on Maui. It's not letters in the mail several times a month announcing that you and your mate have won $50 million in the lottery. It's not $500 gift certificates to Nordstrom's each Saturday morning in your mailbox. It's not happy, carefree teenagers anxious to help with the dishes and thrilled to keep their rooms clean. It's not a mother-in-law with a face like Michelle Pfeiffer and a heart like Mother Teresa. If you are a bride or groom to be anticipating that, he says, I've got only three words for you. Get a life. <laughs> Visit with any married couple for a day or two, especially those with small children, and you will come back to reality really fast. In the same way, he says, fantasy land concepts of Christianity frustrate people more than it helps them. Or it thrills them. The wide-eyed, smiling televangelist won't tell you this, he says, but I'm giving you the straight scoop. Now, I'm convinced that the push for power, power evangelism, power ministry, power ties, power encounters, power this, power that, in every service and in every gathering can be, can be a deception of the enemy. Why do I say that? Because he has always been on a power trip since day one. From the deception in the garden to his attempt to deceive the church today, there are people that would have you believe that unless there is a healing of some sort, a supernatural manifestation of some sort in every single service that we gather in, that the Spirit of God is not present. Is that true? What about the power for living the normal, everyday life. 
What about the strength that he gives to endure sicknesses? And the powerful lessons that we learn in that from suffering. What about the wisdom that he gives to discern the truth in a world that's out of control full of lies? What about the confidence that he gives to the shy young teen to be a witness to his or her unsaved teacher? What about the still, small, quiet encouragement he gives to the discouraged wife who may live day in and day out with an angry, unsaved husband? What about that power that most of us never see? What about the granting of forgiveness by one who has been unjustly accused and terribly mistreated? What about the power for that? What about the unspeakable joy of mutual fellowship and the passionate worship that we share in the body of Christ? Is that not the Spirit of God? Is that not power? Is that not the presence of God's Holy Spirit in our midst? I submit to you that a preoccupation with power is unhealthy, disruptive, distracting, and deceiving. And it has been used by Satan to destroy the church's trust and reliance upon Christ and in him alone for the abundant life. Ultimately, it causes us to crave power, not conversion. It causes us to want recognition and not regeneration. To desire personal respect rather than personal repentance. And I don't believe this is what Christ was talking about or what he had in mind when he said, you will receive power. The clearest illustration of, in the New Testament that I know of that ought to really cause us to evaluate our motives for being filled with the Spirit is the example of Simon the sorcerer in Acts chapter 8. I'd like you to turn there. Acts chapter 8. Because Simon the sorcerer believed in Jesus Christ and he was baptized in that name he was astounded by the miracles performed by the power of the Holy Spirit through the apostles, but he also wanted that same power, but for bad reasons, for selfish reasons. Acts chapter 8, verse 4. Look at the story here. Acts chapter 8, verse 4. Therefore, those who had been scattered went about preaching the word. Philip went down to the city of Samaria and began proclaiming Christ to them. The crowds with one accord were giving attention to what was said by Philip, and they heard and saw the signs which he was performing. For in the case of many who had unclean spirits, they were coming out of them, shouting with a loud voice, and many who had been paralyzed and the lame were healed. So there was much rejoicing in that city. Now there was a man named Simon who formerly was practicing magic in the city and astonishing the people of Samaria, claiming to be someone great. And they all, from smallest to greatest, were giving attention to him, saying, This man is what is called the great power of God. And they were giving him attention because he had for a long time astonished them with his magic arts. But when they believed Philip preaching the good news about the kingdom of God 
in the name of Jesus Christ, they were being baptized, men and women alike. Even Simon himself believed. And after being baptized, he continued on with Philip. And as he observed signs and great miracles taking place, he was constantly amazed. Now when the apostles in Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent them Peter and John who came down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. For he had not yet fallen upon any of them. They had simply been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then when they began laying their hands on them and they were receiving the Holy Spirit, now when Simon saw that the Spirit was bestowed through the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money saying, give this authority to me as well, so that everyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. But Peter said to him, may your silver perish with you, because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. You have no part or portion in this matter, for your heart is not right before God. Therefore, repent of this wickedness of yours and pray the Lord that if possible, the intention of your heart may be forgiven you. For I see that you are in the gall of bitterness and in the bondage of iniquity. I want to emphasize verse 21 here. You have no portion in this matter or part in this matter, they said. Why? For your heart is not right before God. God. His motive was totally wrong. And my question is, what is your motive? What is mine? Why do you want to be filled with the Holy Spirit? Have you thought about that? Have you really gotten down to the bottom line of it? Why do you want to be filled with the Spirit's power? What's the real motive behind the desire? Is it recognition? So you'll be perceived as a holy person? So that you can be a celebrity in the church? Why do you want to play or sing or on the worship team? Why do you want to stand up and preach? Why would you want the power to heal someone or to raise them from the dead? You see, power perverts. It's dangerous. The greater the power, the greater the danger. High voltage power stations have these huge fences around them and huge signs that say, danger. Why? Because it's high voltage, it's high power. And used in the wrong way, can be, have very devastating results. Now, if our hearts are not right before God, the power can be abused. But I want to say something here. Divine power is holy power, and it is given for holy purposes. Remember that. So the next aspect of this that I want to bring out is that we are filled with the Spirit's power for a purpose. There is always a purpose. It is not just for our own benefit. And it always finds its culmination in the glory of God, period. Now, we don't have time to go into all the references on this, but I once spent time looking up every single reference in the Scriptures 
of people who were filled with God's Spirit, Old Testament and New Testament. And in every single case, without exception, the purpose was and is to exalt God and to communicate His truth. Every single case, without exception. There's no question about the objective. It doesn't take a lot of analysis to figure it out, folks. Sad to say, in many places today, that is hardly the pattern of why people want the power of the Holy Spirit. One of the tests of the Spirit-filled life is simply this. Ask yourself the question, is Christ becoming more and more evident in my life? Is he? Is my lifestyle, my conversations, my desires, and my focus of attention bringing honor to God and communicating Christ's love, or is it just promoting my own plans? Again, the Spirit-filled life is a power-filled life, and it will be visible in our everyday walk. That power is manifested when we become honorable vessels to God, available for His use at any time. It happens when we allow him to speak through us, pray through us, love through us, serve through us. It happens when he ignites our gifts and talents for the purpose of pointing other people to Jesus Christ. And we become Christ-like in the process ourselves. The filling of the Spirit is seen when we allow Him to purge anything and everything from our lives that mars Christ's image in us. See, most of us want to be filled, don't we? I do. Do you? And we want to experience more of His power. And maybe our motives are really right. And so we pray for the Spirit's filling. And we pray for the Spirit's power. And that's a good thing. But here's the flip side of it. How many of us, as we're doing these things, are willing, as Kenneth Wiest writes, to make a clean sweep of the things, of things and to be done with some pet sin in our lives? How many of us are willing to do that? Because it's really a waste of time to pray, fill me with your power of your Holy Spirit, Lord, and use me to bring you glory if we have no intention of walking in that power. Why would he give it to us? Someone has pointed out that it's useless to ask for might in prayer if we never pray. Or for boldness in our speech if we never talk about Christ. Or for power to live a holy life if we refuse to root out the known sin in our lives. Or to ask for grace to bear suffering unless we are willing to take up our cross. Or for power in serving if we have no intention of getting involved. So evaluate your motive. Do you really want to be filled with the Holy Spirit? Because God fills us with His Spirit for a purpose, and it's not for personal advancement. And as we embrace the counsel to be filled, as we evaluate our motive as to why we want to be filled, then there's another step. The next step is that we, we all of us, 
can expect some results. You and I can expect results when the Holy Spirit fills us. Look again at Ephesians chapter 5, verse 19. Speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody with your heart to the Lord, always giving thanks for all things in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ to God, even the Father, and be subject to one another in the fear of Christ. We can expect some results according to this text. Being spirit-filled is more than just a command to be obeyed. It is a conduct to be observed. Now the big question. How are we filled? Well, that's an interesting question. Very difficult to answer. Because on the one hand, it seems that Paul never really specifies in this text as to how to be filled. He just talks about what it looks like when you are. Right? He seems to only describe the results here. But there are those that suggest that verses 19 to 21 don't just describe the results of being filled with the Spirit, but also the means to be filled with the Spirit. Now this is going to sound really politician-like. Okay? But I almost think that there's an element of both here in this text. I think it's cyclical. One feeds the other. And I got a little image for you that I want you to look at. Have you ever seen one of these kinds of fountains where it's like, how is that happening? And the question here is, is the cup filling the pot or is the pot filling the cup? Because you know that there's a tube that runs up there that sucks the water up from the bottom and then pours it back out on the outside of the tube to make it look like it's pouring into the cup. An endless supply. So what, what is it? Is the pot filling the cup or is the cup filling the pot? That's what I want you to get in your mind as an image of what it means to be filled with the Holy Spirit. Because clearly the following verses in verses 19 to 21 describe someone whose life is characterized by worship. Read it again. Or maybe it's describing someone who is actively making worship a way of life. Read it again. Which is it? Here's the deal. Here's what I think. I think when you begin to yield yourself to the Spirit's control and make your life an act of worship on a day-to-day -day basis, you're going to be full of the Holy Spirit, which in turn will make your life observably more and more worshipful, which means you'll be full of the Holy Spirit, and it's a cyclical thing. One feeds the other. Four observable things here that characterize a spiritual, a spirit-filled person, according to Paul in this text. Number one, there will be spiritual communication with each other. Spiritual communication with each other. Verse 19, speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. The spirit-filled life engages in communication. Spiritual communication. Now the key factor here is in what we're communicating and to whom that communication is aimed. Being filled with the Spirit affects the way that you and I speak with each other, or at least it should, right? Now let me ask you another question. How many Christians do you know who aren't speaking to one another? By choice? 
They're mad at each other. They're not talking. In fact, they're avoiding each other. How many spouses are giving each other the silent treatment today, even this morning, that are Christians? They're not speaking to each other. Maybe even right now. How many kids are not speak on speaking terms with their parents? Kids that are Christians, parents that are Christians. Or their Christian peers. See, the word speaking here refers to all kinds of verbal communication. It's not confined to normal conversation, but covers every kind of utterance. It may include singing to each other. How many of you husbands sing to your wives? <laughs> or vice versa? I know what you're saying. Some of you are saying you don't even want that to happen. <laughs> you know, it includes singing to each other, giving a testimony, even communicating through music. The New Testament exhorts us to communicate the truth in love. We admonish, we correct, we encourage, we teach one another, we learn from each other. Colossians chapter 3 is a parallel passage that uses the same terminology. Now let me say this. You cannot be full of bitterness, anger, and unforgiveness and at the same time claim to be full of the Spirit. It ain't happening. Sorry. It doesn't work that way. When we're filled with the Spirit, there is mutual communication and the fruit of the Spirit, as we'll see later on in this series in Galatians 5, is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, self-control. It's also speaking to each other in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. There's mutual communication when we're full of the Spirit. And the communication is not only mutual, but it's also, was it, spiritual. It's spiritual. I think Paul's referring to a worshipful communication when we gather together in this text. Psalms, hymns, spiritual songs all relate to that aspect. Truthfully, I believe what Paul is saying here is our interaction with each other should be full of spiritual character and conduct. That's what he's saying. We should be speaking the language of devotion to Christ with each other. At all times. And you know what I'm not talking about? I'm not talking about just walking around spouting off Christian cliches. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. All things work together for good. <laughs> that is not what Paul's talking about here. I don't believe. Because you can spout that. Any unbeliever can spout that stuff off. And I've seen them. He's talking about speaking the language of devotion to Christ. Encouraging one another. Stimulating one another to love and good deeds as we see the day approaching, right? As it says in Hebrews. Think about it hard. What is the focus of our conversation with each other most of the time? What is it? Honestly, if all you could talk about was your spiritual life with someone, how long do you think you could carry the conversation? How long? Spirit-filled life, a spirit-filled Christian just bubbles over, overflows with the language of devotion to Christ. Second thing here that Paul highlights is, is that we will, we will be characterized by a joyful expression to the Lord. Look at 19 again, verse 19. Speaking to one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. Singing and making melody with your heart to the Lord. 
The spirit-filled life produces joy. Regardless of how musical or non-musical you are, nothing is more characteristic of a complete, fulfilled, joyful life than a heart that sings to God. Amen? You may not consider yourself musical in your own mind, but if you know Christ and His Spirit fills you, you will have a song in your heart that was not there before. Psalm 40, verse 3. He put a new song in my mouth, a song of praise to our God. Many will see it and will fear and will trust in the Lord. You see, this kind of communication is evangelical. It's evangelical. Psalm 96, verses 1 and 2. Sing to the Lord a new song. Sing to the Lord all the earth. Sing to the Lord, bless his name, proclaim good tidings of his salvation from day to day. Psalm 149.1. Praise the Lord, sing to the Lord a new song. Sing his praises in the assembly of the faithful. Psalm 33, 1-3. Sing for joy in the Lord, O you righteous ones. Praise is becoming to the upright. You know what that phrase means? It means it fits well. It adorns us well. Give thanks to the Lord with a lyre. Sing praises to him with a harp of ten strings. Sing to him a new song. Play skillfully with a shout of joy. Now, you may think that your voice is not worth lifting up in song. You may think you croak with the bullfrogs, as my wife says. You may only mouth the words when you sing. But friends, don't buy into this world's philosophy that only the perfect, only the accomplished and the talented can sing to God. Don't buy that. God's looking for sounds that are generated from a spirit-filled heart, not necessarily from a polished set of pipes. Right? A great voice that sings, even Christian songs, but sings them without a spirit-filled heart and with the wrong motive is not pleasing to God, no matter how good it sounds to us. It's only noise. That's what Amos chapter 5, verse 23 says. God says, away with your hymns of praise. They are only noise to my ears. I will not listen to your music, no matter how lovely it is. Those are serious words. Now, having said that, I also need to make a disclaimer. That is not to say that every single person should be up here leading worship on Sunday. Especially if you croak with the bullfrogs. No. Any more than just anybody should be up here preaching on Sunday mornings. You know what? Clearly God has given spiritual gifts to people. And they have been distributed by the Spirit in a diverse array of ways for different capacities and for different purposes. And they all work together in the body of Christ as one. Clearly, Paul is not talking about spiritual giftings here. He's talking about our life. He's talking about the way we live our lives together. Whether in the closet alone or at church in a group, the key is not whether we sing polished or poorly. It is to sing with the spirit-filled heart which seeks to glorify God, an audience of one. All of us believers are more than adequately equipped to do that. And so you're thinking, well, what if I can't, what if you can't sing? What if you have a physical problem and you can't sing? You don't have a voice. 
can you still be spirit-filled? Well, the song may be limited by your voice or lack of it, but ultimately the voice is a reflection of your heart. And that's, I believe, what God is interested in and why Paul includes the fact in the phrase, making melody with your heart to the Lord. Amen? So all of us are without excuses, right? Paul covers it. Amazing how the Spirit of God does that. A worshipful heart's the issue. And a heart that is spirit-filled is characterized by joyful expression, if not outwardly, then at least inwardly. And it's always directed in one place, to him, to the Lord. Singing and making melody with your heart, where? To the Lord. That's one of the evidences of a spirit-filled person. They walk in worship every day. They don't wait till Sunday. Worship is happening all the time in their lives. Is that you? I got to confess, sometimes it's not me. But see, that's what Christ is working out in our lives through the process of making us more and more like him. So, what does the spirit-filled life look like? It's characterized by spiritual communication with others, a joyful expression to God, and thirdly, a thankful disposition toward the Father. Look at verse 20. Always giving thanks for all things in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ to God, even the Father. You know what the most frequently repeated command is in Scripture? You should know this by now. I've preached it a million times. It's praise the Lord. That's the most frequently repeated command in Scripture, in the Bible. Praise the Lord. You know what? That can only come from a disposition that is grateful, thankful. Hebrews chapter 13, verse 15 says, Through him then let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. That is the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. Look again at verse 20. When are we to give thanks? Always. For what are we to give thanks? All things. How are we to give thanks? In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And to whom are we to give thanks? To God, the Father. In every good thing gives thanks, Paul wrote to the Thessalonians. For this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. Even in bad times, you say, Psalm 69 says this, I am in pain and distress. May your salvation, O God, protect me. I will praise God's name in song and glorify him with thanksgiving. And you know that that is a messianic psalm. And most of that psalm, a lot of that psalm is quoted about Jesus' crucifixion. The spirit-filled life is a thankful life and it's constantly expanding in its gratitude to God. I want to illustrate this with, with a story I read some time ago. I'd like it to let, it, let, let its flavor slowly saturate your heart and mind. 
Mark Tidd of Webster, New York, describes an experience from his college days. He says, an old man showed up at the back door of the house we were renting. Opening the door, a few cautious inches, we saw his eyes. They were glassy, and his furrowed face glistened with silver stubble. He clutched a wicker basket holding a few unappealing vegetables, and he bid us good morning and offered his produce for sale. We were uneasy enough that we made a quick purchase to alleviate both our pity and our fear. To our chagrin, he returned the next week introducing himself as Mr. Roth, the man who lived in the shack down the road. As our fears began to subside, we got close enough to realize it wasn't alcohol, but cataracts that marbleized his eyes. On, on subsequent visits, he would shuffle in wearing two mismatched right shoes and pull out a harmonica. And with glazed eyes set on a future glory, he'd puff out old gospel tunes between conversations about vegetables and religion. On one visit, he exclaimed, The Lord is so good. I came out of my shack this morning and found a bag full of shoes and clothing on my porch. Bag full of shoes and clothing. That's wonderful, Mr. Roth, we said. We're really happy for you. And he came back with, you know what's even more wonderful? Just yesterday I met some people that could use them. You see, nothing, nothing destroys the testimony of Christianity so abruptly as a thankless, grumbling Christian. Nothing. It is simply not the product of, nor will it lead to, being filled with the Spirit. Tony Evans put it like this. He says, if you can't come to God and say, Lord, everything is wrong, but I just want to thank you that I'm alive to know it then you will not know what it's like to pray out of the Spirit's fullness. That's a hard lesson learned. Spiritual communication, joyful expression, a thankful disposition, they're all part of the process of being filled with the Spirit. And there's one final thing as we wrap this up. And this is the hardest one. The absolute most difficult piece it's the most controversial and the one that you and I resist tooth and nail. It's humble submission to each other. Verse 21, and be subject to one another in the fear of Christ. Here's the dividing line, folks. It's a tough one. It's tough on marriages it's tough on friendships. It's tough on churches and every other relationship that you can name simply because people misunderstand and abuse the concept. Brothers and sisters abuse it. Employers and employees abuse it. They misapply it. Pastors and their congregations misrepresent it. And undeniably, when it is misunderstood, it is the bane of the husband-wife relationship. 
That's why Paul immediately goes into the husband-wife relationship upon stating that case. Notice the next verse. Wives, be subject to your own husbands in the fear of the Lord. As to the Lord. I once read a story that Pastor Jack Hayford told about a married couple who took this idea of submission completely wrong. They attended one of these seminars taught by one of those male demagogues determined to show that Scripture teaches that the man is in charge at home. Heard those before, right? It's the kind of terrible teaching on submission that turns women into lowly doormats. Well, the husband just loved it, of course. He had never heard anything like it in his life, and he drank it all in. His wife, however, sat there fuming as she listened to hour after hour of this stuff. When they left the meeting that night, the husband felt drunk with this fresh power. As he climbed into the car, and while driving home, he said rather pompously, Well, what did you think about that? And his wife didn't utter a word. So he continued, I thought it was great. <laughs> and when they arrived home, she got out and followed him silently into the house. And once inside, he slammed the door and he said, wait right here. Just stand right here for a minute. And she stood tight-lipped and stared at him. He said, I've been thinking about what that guy said tonight. And I want you to know that from now on, that's the way it's going to be around here. Got it? That's the way things are going to run in this house. And having said that, he didn't see her again for two full weeks. After two weeks, he could just barely start to see her just a little bit out of one eye. I had this wife say one time, this is a great thing. Back in the mid-70s, so you guys that are old enough to remember, I think they had a resurgence a few years ago, mood rings. Remember those, mood rings? His wife once said, my husband bought me a mood ring the other day. When I'm in a good mood, it turns green. When I'm in a bad mood, it leaves a big red mark on his forehead. <laughs> That's a mood ring. Listen. There is no problem with submission to each other when our hearts are in submission to God. Amen? There should be no problem. And that is the be-all and end-all of being filled with the Spirit, to be submitted to God in every single area of our lives. It is the epitome of what it means to be Christ-like. Read Philippians chapter 2, verses 1 to 5, where it says that, we're supposed to be like Jesus. Not looking out for our own interests, but for the interests of others. And to view others as more important than ourselves. And we do it out of reverence for Christ. Look at what it says there. Be subject to one another in fear. No. Be subject to one another in the fear of Christ. Because when you fear Christ, you fear no man and no woman. And that's, that is the overriding factor. You're really submitting to Christ, not to anyone else. The Spirit-filled life is mutually submissive. It is a life which consistently lines up under. That's what the Greek word means. It stoops to lift up and carries another person. It is not domineering, demanding, or dictatorial. 
neither is it becoming a doormat to everyone you meet. A healthy, growing in Christ, spirit-filled person will not be caught clawing his or her way to the number one place or battling for the pole position. You know what that means? That means yielding the spotlight to somebody else. And that someone else is ultimately Jesus Christ. And you know what, interestingly enough? That's what being filled with the Spirit looks like in us because that's exactly what the Spirit's ministry is. The Holy Spirit never takes glory to himself. He always points to Jesus. Again, John 16, 14 states that very clearly. Look, as a Christian, you have been blessed with the Spirit of God. He lives in you. You don't need to beg for more of him. You don't need to experience some power presentation in order to be fulfilled in your Christian experience. What you and I need is to give ourselves to the Spirit's control. More and more and more. Embrace the command, evaluate your motive, and then examine the results. Because, you know, frankly, as one writer said, a lot of us are coasting in the Christian community. We're coasting. And a lot of us are getting stranded and deciding just to leave our Christian commitment where it sits and walk away. But Dwight Pentecost says this. He says, until an individual voluntarily submits to control by the Spirit of God, he will not be filled and controlled by the Spirit. That's the price of the Spirit's filling. And the question is, are you willing to pay the price? It costs much to obtain the power of the Spirit, said A.J. Gordon. It costs self-surrender and humiliation and yielding of our most precious things to God. It costs the perseverance of long waiting and the faith of strong trust. But when we're really in that power, we should find this difference is that whereas before it was hard for us to do the easiest things, now it is easy for us to do the hardest things. Let's pray. Thanks so much, Lord God, for the truth of your word. And I do pray that you'd fill us with your spirit. I pray that you'd give us the strength to yield ourselves more and more to your control every single day. And may we be characterized and known as people who have been with Jesus. For I ask it in his holy and precious name. Amen.